right? So a lot of times when people would get arrested or, you know, God forbid someone would get shot, a lot of those times I wasn't there. I was traveling with a basketball team or at football practice or. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon podcast. I'm your host, Michi J. In the news, every day we hear about people, that is young people, killing one another or just going to jail for some sort of criminal activity. Without a doubt, one of the main reasons is because of no father in the home. Now, these fatherless homes also have other bad resulting consequences as well. And that is, they're more than likely to be poor, become involved with drug and alcohol abuse, drop out of school, suffer from health and emotional problems, as well as teen pregnancy. Let's face it, there is a high number of homes without fathers in our society. And that's why today we're going to talk about reducing the risk in fatherless homes. That's why today we're going to talk about reducing the risks in fatherless homes. Our guest today is Rashad Coleman. Rashad is an African-American police officer in Philadelphia who grew up without a father in his home. He will talk with us today about how he didn't just cope with this, but how he successfully overcame this obstacle. Join me in welcoming Rashad on the show. Hey, how's it going? How's it going, guys? Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, great, great. Just tell us a, a little bit more about, um, you know, the background with your, your your writing this book about being a fatherless son, because, you know, like I said, this is a big issue in our in the black American culture and just everywhere, too. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So looking at um, writing a book, as you said, um, thank you for the introduction. Also, uh, one thing I thought was missing from the narrative of um, individuals that are incarcerated is what happens to the family, mm. right? So a lot of times we're focused on um, that individual that's that's in prison, whether they committed the crime or not. But I think uh, more times than none, we forget about uh, the mother that's out there who has a child in prison or the sister out there who has a brother in prison or, or the son or daughter out there that has a parent in prison. Um, so I wanted to do more exploring about what happens uh, to the family and, sh- and showcase what happens to the family uh, as they have that person that they love uh, that's inside of those jail walls, um, all the things that they go through. And I felt like that story is not told enough. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I took on the the task of um, writing this book called Fatherless Son um, and giving the truth, the, some of the truths about what happens to that family uh, once that person is uh, led away. So what, tell us about that. Um... How many brothers and sisters did you have? Or I have two older brothers, so I'm the youngest of three. Youngest of three. So how was it for, in wow, three boys? So how was it growing up yeah. that one? Right. So uh, one thing we had to do was rely on my mother, um, who is like like many um, women that have a, a loved one uh, incarcerated. They have to they they just have to be strong, 
at the end of the day. I mean, they can't, you know, they can't give in to, to what society thinks about them. They have to pick up as much slack as possible uh, when that when that male figure is taken out of the household. So uh, me and my brother and I, my brothers and I, I mean, I'll speak for myself, uh, just dealt with a lot of insecurities uh, at a young age from having a father. You know, I, in the book, I write about um, my first uh, time going out for an organized sport, which was football. And I had this coach named Coach George. And um, there was a there was a time where we had to fill out the information about our parents um, and where our parents lived at. And uh, all the kids are going through the line. And I can remember sitting there thinking as I'm moving closer and closer to that paper. And he's asking everyone the question out loud. What's your mother's name? What's your father's name? Where do they live at? And I wrestled with the fact of, of what I would say. You know, my, my other teammates were saying, oh, my, my father lives on, you know, 44th Street or 3rd or Street or, or 22nd Street. And I was saying to myself, man, what do I say when I get to the front? And uh, when I got to the front, uh, um, the prison that he was in was uh, it's a pretty notorious prison in, in the state of Delaware. It's called Smyrna Prison. And uh, he said, where's your mother stay? And I gave my mother's address and he said, well, where's your father stay? And uh, I kind of hesitated. And I said, Smyrna. And, um, you know, he looked at me as as if to say, you know, I know what you're, you know, I know what you're wrestling with right now. You know, we'll worry about that later. Um, just go ahead, you know, go ahead on to the next line. And, you know, that exemplified a lot of a lot of what we go through as children with a parent incarcerated, that insecurity that you don't, even though I was so young, I mean, at this time, I, I had to be, I want to say like 10 or 11 years old, I still understood that I was in a, a weird situation. You know, I didn't know why my father was incarcerated. I didn't know what had happened. He was incarcerated when I was three years old. So I had absolutely no knowledge about the case and, and some of the things that he had went through. And yet that um, that spirit of insecurity, you know, still rained down on me um, throughout my childhood for, for having a father that was in prison and wasn't inside of the household. Hmm. Yeah, that is that is tough, you know. Uh, uh, something big to try and process for a 10 or 11 year old at that time. And thank God that your, your coach saw what you were going through and, and didn't press that issue. So in what, in I'm, I'm, first off, I'm, I'm just so glad that you're showcasing what goes on in the family when, what happens to the children? How is it, you know, the effects on the mother? I know it's, you know, the finances is, probably off the chain so because of not that extra income so what other things um did you have to struggle with you know watching mom take on such a load is had to have a toll on you as well yeah so so one thing that was real big um that i that i believe we had to deal with was my mother picking up that slack as you said financially mm -hmm. so she was forced to you know work two or three jobs most of which were were when we were out of school, right? She would have that daytime job. Then after that, she would have to go to a, a night job, whether she was waiting tables or, or just picking up extra hours at her job. And in turn, what that did with us is, you know, we ran the street more. You know, we, we were out there, you know, on, on a street corner, um, maybe not doing anything illegal, but you're out there around a, a bunch of people that may be doing things illegal. So um, you're essentially being raised by, by the streets, so to speak. So my mother did it. She always tried to instill in us good values, um, what to do and what not to do. Um, but when you're not there and those pressures of everyday life is put upon you, um, eventually, you know, you, be, you begin to bend to, bend to them. Um, and that's one thing I, I talk about in my book, Fatherless Son, is um, one of the chapters talks about me um, having my first uh, experience with a female. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at a pretty young age. It was about, a, about 12 years old. And, uh, you know, oh, I look yeah. at it, That's I look young. at it today. Yeah. I look at it today <laughs> as, as, as I was very early in age, but at the time, a lot of my friends had already had that experience mm-hmm. with females. Um, and they were my age. So I was one of the, the, the latter ones. I was one of the late ones wow. uh, to have that experience mm-hmm. at that time. And, um, hmm. you know, hmm. I, I, after it happened, I remember thinking maybe if I had a father around, I, I wouldn't have had that experience so early right. um, because it is something now that I, you know, you know, now that I'm older and I have children and I have two daughters and a son that I think about with them. I mean, I have an eight-year-old, so that would be like in four years old, I mean, I mean four years, her having that experience. And I can't even imagine, mm-hmm. um, you know, that being the case, um, be, be it is that it may, uh, you know, th- things like that, things like her not being able to be there because the father wasn't in the house, you have to constantly navigate the streets and constantly navigate who's a good friend, who's not a good friend. And, um, you know, if sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I grew up um, in a a home such like that, uh, such as that, and definitely insecurities and not feeling safe. I know, um, you know, with my mom and my brother, he's been in and out of jail. So it's definitely insecurities all the time and um, having her to take on extra jobs. So I definitely can relate to that. So you are a police officer. It's like you, so you don't have any criminal background. Am I right? That's correct. Yep. So that is commendable, especially, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the children do catch cases, um, especially the young men. So what, what helped you not fall into that trap? Yeah. That's a great question. I think um, one of the one of the things I'll pat myself on the back for is I was able to I've always been able to dissect what's going on around me and look at the outcome of 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 that situation, right? So my brothers got in some trouble early on, and I seen how that affected my mother, right? Mm-hmm. I seen how she would cry, um, not only because she she wasn't there, but she kind of felt like she wasn't doing something correct. But what other choice? you know, did she have, she had to work. So she couldn't, you know, stand watch over my brothers 24 seven. Um, and w- once I seen them uh, start, to, start to kind of sway a little bit, which they're doing great now, but at that, you know, at that young age in, in an environment that's a high crime area, high drug area, once they started to sway, I seen how that affected my mother. And I didn't want that, I, I didn't want her, I didn't want to put that burden on her. I knew she was struggling with them and I seen she was struggling with them. And I said to myself, I can't put my mom through that. And, and again, I'm, I'm the third child. So I think she, she, she probably laugh at this, but she had a lot of practice, right. With the first two. <laughs> so, uh, so, so by the time I came through, she, she really did a great job with, with giving me some values and teaching me what's right and teaching me what's wrong. Um, and, and, and the most unique thing that she taught me mm-hmm. was how to pick my friends, right. She would always say, you know, it's about 10 of y'all out there later on in life. All ten, are, all 10 are not going to be there anymore. And you got to make sure that you're not one of the ones that's not there. Um, and it's the truth as I, as I look around now and today, whether a friend is in jail, whether a friend is in the coffin, um, all of us are not here, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to answer your question, I think the biggest thing was I, I didn't want, I, I wanted my mom to be proud of me and I didn't want to put that burden on my mom. Yes, yeah. I'm listening to you and I can relate because 
I remember my mom going through all that and I couldn't, it's like, I didn't want to put any more pressure on her. So I felt I needed to be not perfect, but it was a lot of pressure <laughs> at times. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. cause you didn't want, you saw how much it was for financially and the struggle and you just, mm-hmm. you know, work early and, you know, at an early age to try and help out. So she don't feel as burdened and, um, wow, that is good. That's, you know, with you watching your brothers and seeing just how she felt that mm-hmm. that's commendable as well. So, yeah. Um, and, and to go a little farther also, um, I was blessed to kind of be a pretty fast, um, and pretty tall. So a lot of coaches took a liking to me also at a young age. Um, and that's what I always try to harp to people is the, is, is, the one thing you have usually in the inner city and those tough neighborhoods is sports programs. Yeah. And even if you're not good at those sports programs, what they do is they take you off of the street corner. Right. So a lot of times when people would get arrested or, you know, God forbid someone would get shot. A lot of those times I wasn't there. I was traveling with a basketball team or at football practice or, you know, mm-hmm. all those things. When, when I'm there, I'm feeling like I'm missing out. Right. Cause all these exciting events would happen, but in hindsight, looking at it, it was a blessing. It was a true blessing for these coaches to take me out of that environment um, and put me in a structured environment where I could begin to to build my build my manhood, so to speak, and stay away from a lot of the negativity that came along uh, with standing on a street corner and, and running the streets with friends. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. So we are talking about how to reduce the risk and especially what can family do. So that's a good a good point, put them in sports and, um, you know, try and get them some good mentors with the, with the coaches and stuff that will spend that time. Um, that is good. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, probably sharing their, their experience, the mom, um, mm-hmm. or the sister sharing their experiences with them and probably talking to them if they don't, if they're not as alert as you are, Rashad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and understanding what, what they go through, not trying to hide that. So what else could there be to help to support a family? I know it's, a, it's other programs that maybe at a church or maybe at a Y, but it's just finding out what the kids, um, what they are passionate about. Yeah. A lot of times the schools have programs mm-hmm. um, after school, um, which which to inner city kids seem a little nerdy, but again, <laughs> some of these things are, are vital in keeping you out of that environment. You know, every minute that you're not there is a, is a, is a minute well spent, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're book clubs, um, political clubs, after school, um, any clubs that, the, like you said, that the churches have um, mm-hmm. would be good at getting them into that, into that structured environment. Nowadays, we have the, the world at our fingertips, right? With our mm-hmm. phones, and our tablets and, and computers and things of that sort. So th- there are a lot of options out there, but I've found that, you know, you have to go looking for those options um, as a, wh- whether you're a mother or grandmother or someone like that, um, that that's fighting to keep that child out of trouble. You just got to take that one step um, to get them out of that environment and, and, and try to figure out exactly what it looks like. So for me, it was sports, right? That's something I, I tend to be good at. Um, mm-hmm. And that worked for me, but it could be a book club. Um, that, that the kid, it could be a chess club, all types of things that Mm -hmm. you can find within your neighborhood, um, that can keep that kid's head on straight. All right. Okay. So noting that 
Now, what as a police officer, mm-hmm. what would you say? What a police officer can do to re- help reduce risk for these、um, kids that's coming out of these single-family homes? What could I know? They usually don't. You all usually have some sort of neighborhood officer or community officer or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, we, so, and most police police agencies they have neighborhood officers that can reach out.、Mm-hmm. Um, I know when I was coming up, we had a police athletic league, which was、mm-hmm. pretty cool. That was a more of like a community center that kids would go to、um, and hang out. And I think this question is kind of twofolded, right?、Mm-hmm. Um, I I, th- I think that the community could do a better job in engaging police officers. Oh yeah.、Um, so, yeah. Sometimes. Or you know more times than none in the in the in the academy and and coming out of the academy and talking to police, it's always this us versus them mentality.、Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of officers are sort of waiting to see how the community is going to react to them、uh, before they engage with them, if that makes sense. So、mm-hmm. sometimes you know if you if you would just ask an officer who's your favorite basketball team, who's your favorite basketball player, that opens up like such a a wide door. For that officer to be able to come in and give his give his resources、um, to you know to the community, right? That's, so that's one fold. It is the, is the community attempting to reach out to the police officers, you know, to reduce that risk. Because when you, when you're out there as a police officer, you don't know who's who, right? Right. You you turn you turn that corner, and they say you get a person with a gun call,、uh, white t-shirt, blue jeans, black male. Well, we I mean we tend to all dress you know so, sort of alike. So you don't know who who is who. You don't know who the person is with the gun. All you know is person with a white T-shirt. Okay, we got three people with white T-shirts.、Mm-hmm. Who am I supposed to stop? You know,、mm-hmm. one might be in college. One might be the bad guy. But we but we don't know,、mm-hmm. right? So it's always important. What I tell people is always important to engage with the local officers that are in your area.、Um, and from a police standpoint, I think one thing that we can do is kind of cut back on us rewarding.、Um, Man, I, the, the words on the tip of my tongue.、Okay. But let let me give you an example. So、mm-hmm. if I get if I get a gun arrest,、mm-hmm. right, my my sergeant or my lieutenant will、oh, praise me. Right,、okay. that's great. You you did a good job. You got that gun off the street. That's all well and good, right? So once you get that that praise and that respect and and you know that medal and things of that sort, you kind of want to keep getting that. And I think you wanting to keep getting that、um, could lead into you. Beginning to harass people, right? Beginning to, to 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 work the other way because you're looking for something. You're looking for that same praise. So I think that if we would not necessarily reward things of that sort, but reward the community service officers and reward when officers are going in there helping kids out or giving kids second chances that may need a second chance, I、mm-hmm. think that will go a long long ways with reducing reducing the risk. Also, I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to that makes sense, but、that. you you're giving us some insight. To inside what goes on in the head like that, because we、mm-hmm. we wouldn't know that out in a community. So how would we? You said engage with our local police. Do we just go up to the station and、um, just hey,、yeah. I'm such and such. I like to <laughs> introduce myself. <laughs> yeah, that's so. So it's interesting, right?、Mm-hmm. Because、uh, when I when I worked in, I don't work in Philadelphia anymore. But when I did. With some communities, and I have to be careful how I word this. Some communities will, will bring in, you know, baked cookies and, and and you know orange juice or you know coffee, you know, of course donuts and things of that sort, right?、Mm-hmm. And in in return, the policing in that neighborhood wasn't as aggressive 
if you catch my drift. Okay. Right. So, so because of those things, it was more out there. They, they knew who the officers are. They know the officer's name. Mm-hmm. So when you were, were patrolled around those areas, your, your sense of anxiety was low, mm-hmm. right? Because they reached out to you. Those same people with those same mentalities might've been in, in these other neighborhoods, but because they're not up there kind of, like you said, in the districts engaging with, with the officers, Therefore, when they patrol those areas, their anxiety is a, is a little higher. So, yeah, so I would, you know, there, there are all kind of uh, events that you can request an officer to come to, um, such as barbecues, right? You can, really? you can always call the local local district. Hey, we're having a barbecue. We'd love for one of the officers to stop by um, just, just to meet some of the people in the neighborhood. Oh, that's um, a good idea. Yeah, okay. barbecues, block parties, all okay. those different type of things. And I would... If I was in a neighborhood, you know, on the other side, I would not only engage those officers that they're going to send because they're going to send Mr. Friendly, but also engage your your average officer riding by. Right. Even if you just flag them down and say, hey, officer, I just want you to be safe, man. Just let you know we're praying for you. If you ever need anything from us, you know, we're here. Just something simple like that will just put an officer's mind at ease. Right. And he'll always remember that on this block, somebody somebody said this to me. So whenever I get a call to this block about somebody in trouble, you know, I'm going 110 miles an hour to go make sure that that person is okay. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Because, um, yeah, because when I was growing up, I didn't um, see much of that engagement. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, where I'm at now um, in the Milwaukee area, in a, so, you know, um, far, as far um, in the city as you can go, it's like more of, in um, the police contact and have meetings like once a month and talk about um, break-ins, different things like that, and just really engaged. It's mm-hmm. totally different. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I think that is a good point, which you made because you know I would like to see more communities getting together and doing that as well and trying to you know work on issues together. That, mm-hmm. that is interesting. Um, yeah. You know, what you yeah, I've, yeah, I've had, because I've mm-hmm. had people just flag, flag me down and say, hey, my son's favorite player is LeBron James. Who's, who's your favorite player? And I might say Michael Jordan. And we just get into this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I became an officer was because I never had a, a, a just real authentic conversation with a police officer, right? right. Every time a police officer came uh, around me, it was either to search search me or to lock somebody up that I cared about. So I always had that negative taste in my mouth about police officers, but I understood the presence that they had when they came around. Um, so my thing is always, what if I can use that same presence for a good, for good, right? To tell that kid, look, you're way too good to be sitting on a street corner right now. And what do you like to do? Do you like computers? Do you like books? Where, where what can we do to help you out so that you're not standing there on the street corner? Um, about to get in trouble. That is, that's an excellent point, a real excellent point. Um, and also, like, tell us a little bit, if you want, I, I hope you do, tell us what happened with, with your dad a little bit, and where are you at in that process, because it's unfortunate that, you know, he had gotten charged mm-hmm. for something he didn't do. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking. Mm-hmm. Um, always a very sensitive subject in our in, in our family. Uh, but as you said earlier, you know, at the start, my father he spent twenty almost twenty eight years in jail. He went to prison uh, when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the, the crimes that he was charged with. And I know this is a, 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 a podcast that, you know, kid, kids listen to too, um, but he had allegedly kidnapped some, kidnapped someone um, on a night and allegedly um, had an unwanted sexual experience with another, another female that night, mm-hmm. um, which was, who was 79 years old, I might add, which is, Heinous, which is, yeah. yeah, which is painstaking, right? Mm-hmm. So he gets arrested and he gets locked up, taken away. 28 years and and about the time he was coming out later on I was going into the academy and uh he wanted me to look into his case so you know one thing your audience might know is that when you get a life sentence well he was he, he got two life sentences plus five years uh, was his was his sentence so uh he appealed one of the life sentences and got him thrown out and then he eventually got out of, got out of prison after 28 years uh he was out of prison for about two years when the police called him back in and told him that he needed to start wearing a monitor. Um, he, had, he hadn't gotten any, any trouble. He was totally clean for that time. They put him in the office and told him he needs to wear a monitor and see a probation officer. Hmm. And when he inquired, well, why do I have to do this now that, you know, it's two years later, yeah. said, the paperwork just, just caught up to you, you know, because of these crimes. Um, and his question was, well, how long do I have to do this? And they said, for the rest of your life. You know, you have a life sentence. Though we let you out of prison for the rest of your life, we can monitor you. And at that point, I don't get that. I don't get it. If they let him out, Mm -hmm. it was, was it, why did they let him out? Was it because they found out that he wasn't guilty? No. So they still, to this day, believe that he was guilty of a crime. But usually uh, a life sentence during that time was 25 years. Oh, okay. So, So after you hit 25 years, then you can go off for you can go off for parole. They talk to you about what happened, okay. you know, blah 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 blah. If they feel like you should get out, if you don't feel like you should get out, then it is what it is. So he went up five times, and it was fifth time he was able to able to get released. But on his release, they still were able to monitor him. So right. I, you know, I questioned him about it when he first got released. You know, do you want me to look into the case? Because he'd always said, and my mother always said he didn't commit this crime. Um, and he said, no, I don't, I don't want you to look into the case. You know, I know what this system can do to me. I've lived it for almost 28 years. At this point, I just want to live out the rest of my life and just, you know, it just be what it is at this point. But after they had put him back on the monitoring system, um, he came back to me again and said, look, we got to look into this. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way I'm still going to be sitting, you know, walking around with this monitor that Mm -hmm. goes off every six hours. I can't even work a full-time job, which Mm -hmm. I've dreamed of doing when I was for 27 years, getting out, working eight hours a day. I don't care what I'm doing, working eight hours a day, and I can't even do that. Mm-hmm. So we looked into the we looked into the case, um, and I've seen a lot of uh, missteps on the police part, on the state's part, th- throughout the case. Um, one of which, which is glaring, which is remarkable, which your which your your audience will love, is at the same time he was stopped, another individual was being chased, and that individual that was, that was being chased had on the same jacket um, that was. Um, pointed out by both victims. Um, and yet, you know, my father still was charged with it based mm-hmm. on some ATM photos um, that the police had received. Mm-hmm. So we went up for, we went up, we went up for parole after we got all this information together. Um, I drew up some, um, some records to go in front of the probation and parole board to get his sentence essentially commute, commuted, which means that he just doesn't have to serve the rest of his life sentence. So he'd be off probation and parole, he'd be off his monitoring, all those things. Um, is that and, similar to a pardon? What is that? 
So a commutation, uh, so, so a pardon means that the, the usually the governor of the state is right. just saying, I forgive you for what you've done and I'll take this off your record. Right. Um, but usually to go along with that, you have to admit to what you've done. You've done. Yeah, so that's you have to a say, guilty. Yeah, that's a yeah, guilty. You have to say, I did it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was guilty. Is it possible for you to for you to give me a pardon? Once you give them that pardon now, if he applies to certain jobs, it won't show up um, on his record. What a commutation means is you have a life sentence. You've been on this life sentence for 30 years. OK, I'm stopping a life sentence right now. Now you can go live your life. So essentially that that's what it was, which which we were grateful for. Our attorney general has a as a um, a program called the actual innocence program, which means that if you committed a crime or you were found guilty of committing a crime and you can prove that you didn't commit the crime, she'll reopen the case. And this was her plea to um, the mainly African-American inner city community that, look, we want to work hard to make sure to right any wrong that may have happened in the past. So we put in our application for it you know, got, got started with it. We were able to, we were granted the commutation by the governor. Um, and at that same time, we met a gentleman that worked in an actual innocence project who said he was willing to look at our application to see if we meet the criteria in order to have his case be open. That was part one of my chat with Rashad. We learned a lot about what happens to the family of those who are incarcerated. Like Rashad said, their story is too often untold. We do, though, see the results, and it can bring down a family and its community. Rashad gave us some good keys to help us fight this, though. There's still more to hear from Rashad, so tune in next week to hear part two. Thanks for tuning in to the show. For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonerspardon.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.